Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants 49 and 50. And it really is nice to have these two back to back because this is a very significant warning from the Lord. And big picture, I think we need to stand back and hear the warning. And that is section 49 is a warning against false doctrine. And section 50 is a warning against false revelation. We can believe a truth that is false, and if we believe it and act on it, we may treat people inappropriately or we may offend God. So we need to make sure that we don't believe a falsehood. Now, what's interesting about section 49 is kind of the context. Sometimes we think of false doctrine as deliberate lies sent out by enemies of righteousness trying to destroy us. But section 49's background is really good intending people, religious, loving people who on their own study came to some wrong conclusions. And the Lord steps forward and corrects those wrong conclusions. And I think one of the messages we need to hear is even with good intent, we might believe and teach a false doctrine. So, major message is beware of false doctrines and beware of false revelations. We can be deceived by false messages. All around us, there are people who are receiving messages and they are convinced they are coming from a divine source when they are not. And once again, we've seen this so many times, once again, the Lord has to clarify and say, this is revelation and this is not. That's a major theme that's been flowing throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, all the way back in the early sections where he had to say, this is my spirit. Or with Hiram Page and his seer stone, just because you have a stone doesn't mean you get revelation. Or in section 43, advocates for the age who yell loudly aren't necessarily speaking truth. So revelation and where it comes from and what is a divine source and what is not. So we're going to talk about false doctrines and false revelations. But before we jump into that, you kind of need to know when you get into section 49, we need to know the history of this group called the Shakers and those who had joined the church from the Shakers. Yeah. A lot of the revelations of the restoration that we read in the Doctrine and Covenants could be applied to the shaking Quakers. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to live at peace. They were into honesty. They liked to live a communal life, a simple life. They worked together. They were really a peaceful, Christ-centered group. They were called the shaking Quakers because their dress resembled that of the Quakers, the Society of Friends, and because their worship did involve some shaking. If you go to the show notes, there's actually a beautiful picture of what historians call the circular dance of the Shakers, which I think it's pretty cool that they had a circular dance that kind of invoked revelation. And if you pull on some of these threads, especially in ancient Christianity, there's all this literature swirling around that the early Christians would pray and they would have a dance in a circle and that that would invite revelation. You can see that maybe where they get this is from antiquity. 
And they were. They were called the Shaking Quakers, and they lived about 15 miles away from where Joseph and the saints are settling in Ohio. And there's a fellow who has joined the church, and his name is Lehman Copley. And we've talked about him. We've talked about how the Colville branch came and lived on his property. And as a result of his missionary experience, he falters in his faith, and he throws the Colville branch off of his property. Um, but in this instance, he, he goes to talk to the Shakers. This revelation was given, and he, meaning Lehman, along with Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt, were directed to take this message, this revelation, section 49, to the Shakers. Some months previously, Elder Pratt had spent a couple of days with them and left seven copies of the Book of Mormon with the Shaking Quakers. And so this revelation, section 49, which was then taken to them, was read in its entirety by Sidney Rigdon to the Shakers. They didn't really accept it. Um, What were some of their beliefs? Essentially, they believed that Christ had already returned in the form of a woman, Anne Lee, who died in 1784. They held, the Shakers, that the baptism and the Lord's Supper ceased with the apostolic age and that there was no vicarious atonement, nor was there to be a bodily resurrection. They rejected the eating of pork. Some of their members rejected eating any meat at all. And then to me, one of the big ones, one of the big markers of their faith, and this is one of the reasons why there's not a lot of them today, is they believe that the superior life was to be celibate. And in that way, they were following Jesus Christ. And so they didn't get married. They didn't get involved in intimacy. And as that happens over time, your numbers are going to dwindle. And so in the show notes, we give you some links where you can go and you can read Ken Burns. He's a historian. He does a lot of stuff with the Shaking Quakers, uh, a really good balanced approach to what they're doing. Because from my perspective, I think they're doing a lot of things right. Uh, One of the things that they're into that I'm a big fan of is they're not a really big fan of war or slavery. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to live at peace. They were really a Christ-centered group, but they were just a little bit off, I think. So they got a lot of things right. And hats off to those who study and ask and seek and search. You can get a lot of things right, but the point is they got some things wrong. I really like the pattern. This revelation establishes the pattern of how we're to do missionary work. The missionaries are not going to go there and engage with them over the points of their doctrine in the Bible. What they did was Sidney Rigdon came to them, he read the revelation, he presented it to them, and then invited them to choose, to decide if they would follow. And I think that's the pattern. Yeah. Give them truth and let people choose. So there's kind of the history. You've got a group of well-meaning people who on their own came to some wonderful conclusions that were right and in harmony with the Lord's commandments, and they came into some conclusions that were not in harmony with the Lord's doctrines. And so I think the point there is that we can believe false truths. We can be taught by other people false doctrines. And some of those false doctrines aren't deliberate lies trying to destroy us. They're just misses. And we need to guard ourselves against some of these misses. So before we jump into section 49, let me give you some general rules that I think will guide us all into making sure we stay grounded and our doctrine is as pure as it can be. Rule number one is that essential truths will be taught by every 
prophet, seer, and revelator. You will find them repeatedly, taught often, and everywhere. If you're looking for one quotation or this one talk that establishes a truth that no one else has talked about, you should pretty well be aware that you're barking up the wrong tree. Let me read a couple quotations. I love this one from Elder Neil L. Anderson from his conference talk in 2012. He said, there is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. If you are advocating a doctrine that is hard to find in our teachings, you should probably check it. Because odds are, you are believing something that is not 100% pure doctrine. True doctrine is taught all over the place. Boyd K. Packer confirmed that when he said, What I say is based on three convictions. Number one, instruction vital to our salvation is not hidden in an obscure verse or a phrase in the Scriptures. To the contrary, Essential truths are repeated over and over again. Second, every verse, whether oft-quoted or obscure, must be measured against other verses. There are complementary and tempering teachings in the Scriptures which bring a balanced knowledge of truth. Next, there is a consistency in what the Lord says and what He does. That is evident in all creation. Nature can teach valuable lessons about spiritual and doctrinal matters. The Lord drew lessons from flowers and foxes, from seeds and salt and sparrows and sunsets. Fourth, not all that God has said is in the Bible. Other scriptures, like the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, have equal validity and they sustain one another. Fifth, While much must be taken on faith alone, there is individual revelation through which we may know the truth for ourselves. What may be obscure in the Scriptures can be made plain through the gift of the Holy Ghost. In other words, there's a personal line and a priesthood line. And what comes through the priesthood line can be confirmed and added upon in the personal line. We can have as full an understanding of spiritual things as we are willing to earn. So let's make sure we are grounded and rooted and that we teach and believe true doctrine that is taught everywhere. One more quotation. I don't mean this to come across as offensive. President Smith, I don't think, was in trying to offend anyone, but to raise a red flag. Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, who I believe was one of the most brilliant men that ever lived, said the following, Among the Latter-day Saints, the preaching of false doctrines disguised as truths of the gospel may be expected from people of two classes and practically from these only. They are, first, the hopelessly ignorant whose lack of intelligence is due to their indolence and sloth, who make but feeble effort, if any at all, to better themselves by reading and study. Those who are afflicted with this dread disease 
that may develop into an incurable malady, laziness. Second, the proud and self-vaunting ones, who read by the lamp of their own conceit, who interpret by rules of their own contriving, who have become a law unto themselves, and so pose as the sole judges of their own doings, more dangerously ignorant than the first, beware of the lazy and the proud. Their infection in each case is contagious. Better for them and for all when they are compelled to display the yellow flag of warning that the clean and unaffected may be protected. Now, that's a pretty harsh statement. Let me soften it a little bit. He's saying false doctrine comes when we don't study enough. We don't take the time to learn the true doctrine. We don't read and ponder and explore and search and seek. We just we make assumptions with limited information. So make sure that you explore your questions, find the answers that are taught repeatedly. He said the second group are proud people who are unwilling to be corrected. They are absolutely assured that the conclusions they've come to are correct. Joseph Smith was asked a series of questions so many times that he ended up just writing them and publishing them. The first two questions fascinate me. He was asked, do the Latter-day Saints believe the Bible? And the answer, if we do, we are the only people under heaven that does. For there are none of the religious sects of the day that do. Now, that's a bold statement. We're the only people that believe the Bible? So the next question is, wherein do you differ from other sects? And the answer is, in that we believe the Bible. And all other sects profess to believe their interpretations of the Bible and their creeds. And I think what Joseph was trying to say is, don't form your belief and then go to the scriptures looking for confirmation of your belief. You will find a verse that confirms the belief you've come to. And that happens a lot. People form a belief, and then they jump into the scriptures and, oh, look, that verse confirms it. Therefore, I'm true. I believe I've found a truth because it's confirmed in the Bible. What Joseph is saying is, let the scriptures teach you what to believe. Rather than forming a belief and then going to the scriptures and finding confirmation, let the scriptures tell you what the truth is. Balance every truth with other scriptures. Make sure it is taught repeatedly and frequently. Right, so I just got to say that's a really good approach to a lot of things. So, for example, I think sometimes we'll look at the life of someone historically, we'll find that one thing, and we'll either make them a hero or a villain based on that one thing. And I think what Joseph's trying to say is take the overall message of the Scriptures and look at the text as a whole. And as you do, we're back to this tapestry or we're back to this mosaic image. You'll see the picture. But if you focus so much on one piece of the mosaic, some people will take that one piece and make it their gospel, or they'll take that one piece and tear down the whole mosaic. So for example, a historical figure like Abraham Lincoln, there are people out there that want to just tear him to shreds because of one or two things that he may have said because he was uh, subject to cultural bias. And yet, if you look at the totality of the man's life, what he did for this republic, I think you have to say 
that he was inspired of heaven. That's my personal opinion. It's the same thing with this podcast. Bryce and I are not perfect. We're going to say something that's going to be based on our own cultural bias or, or our own understanding of the text or language or whatever. And there may be someone out there that say, oh, he said this, therefore, and then they just say horrible things about us. In our cancel culture today, there are people that want to cancel entire movements or churches or people based on one thing. Now, am I canceling the shaking Quakers? And that's where I, what I want to do is address, no, they're doing some great things. So what the Lord's going to do in this section is he's going to address those things that they need to correct and invite them to do it. And let's take that as a pattern for our lives. We need to judge with the whole thing in our perspective. Don't let your doctrinal knowledge be limited to something that you like, and then you go to a scripture that seems to confirm your conclusion. Let the scriptures teach you what the truth is. I love how Neil A. Maxwell worded it one time. He said, many in the world hold back from making the leap of faith because they have already jumped to some other conclusion. So, Let truth resonate in your soul. So let's go into section 49. The Shakers got a lot of things right, but they came to some conclusions that are incorrect, that need to be corrected. And the ironic thing is that some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can often come to a wrong conclusion, and somehow the Lord needs to help correct those. And sometimes we can believe something that's not correct, and the Lord's okay with it, meaning Let's say I have a a belief that's maybe not in line with heaven. It's one thing to believe it, but it's another thing to outwardly teach it. And I think that's one of the reasons why this was brought up is because Lehman Copley, who came from this group, was still holding to those beliefs, which is one thing. But then in the historical record, we read that he was actively persisting in teaching it. And so it's at that point where the Lord's like, well, we've got to correct this. And I think about that in a sacrament meeting. If you're a bishop and someone's up there advocating and they're teaching an incorrect doctrine, I think it is up to the bishop at some point, especially if it's blatant, to stand up and say, hey, we appreciate the talk from so-and-so, but the doctrine of the church is this. I think that's their job as the presiding officer in the meeting. And so in this context, historically, Lehman is persisting in this idea that celibacy is the higher way of living and forbidding to eat meats. And so these things are addressed in the 49th section. Boyd K. Packer once said, A member at any given time may not understand one point of doctrine or another, may have a misconception or even believe something that is true that is in fact false. There is not much danger in that. That is an inevitable part of learning the gospel. No member of the church should be embarrassed at the need to repent of a false notion he might have believed. Such ideas are corrected as one grows in light and knowledge. It is not the belief of a false notion that is the problem. It is the teaching of it to others. And I'm going to insert here, which I think gets to the heart of section 49, in the church we have the agency to believe what we want to believe about whatever we want to believe. And I, I don't think that that's the problem here as much as it's the what we insist other people believe that we condemn them for. So let's jump into some of the false beliefs that get corrected in section 49. The first one has to do with Jesus. You have to get Jesus right. Being wrong about Christ and his expectations of you is absolutely critical. Who Jesus is and what he wants you to do, we cannot miss. We can't miss that one. 
So coming right out of the gate, he clarifies, Jesus was not Ann Lee. He has not come, and he does require baptism. Because they were wrong on some very important doctrines as to who Christ is, what Christ has done, and what Christ expects of me. So those are very, very quickly clarified that Jesus calls for every one of us to repent and be baptized. I just want to point out that from 5 through 14, he corrects some false ideas about Christ and his expectations, and then he comes back to that in 22 through 25. So he begins and ends with, let's get Jesus right. Let's get his coming right. Let's get his expectations right. Let's get his identity right. He says in verse 22, Jesus is not a female. He didn't come in the form of Anne Lee. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus of the New Testament and Jehovah of the Old Testament. So very, very important for people to get Jesus right. Sometimes we want to know Jesus, but we don't. That takes us back to verse 2. I want to know Jesus, but I don't want to know Jesus. Because the reality is, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to know the Savior, he's going to change you. I think some of us say, well, I kind of want to know, but I don't really want to know. And that's what I love about verse 2. Yeah, I really think verse 2 can be read a couple different ways. But if you look at verse 2 and you just look at the second part of the second line where they know the truth in part, I really empathize with that because that's how I feel walking through mortality is I, I know the truth in part, but do I have all of it? And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably sitting here going, I want to know all as much truth as I can get. And I think that's the message of the restoration to get that light. And I think what the Lord is saying, if you look at the beginning of that verse where he says, behold, I say unto you that they desire to know the truth in part. In other words, I think the heart of verse two is their desire. Now, I certainly don't know. I wasn't there. But in this context, in this revelation, the Lord is calling them out on that. And I think that's a gut check for me. Like, what do I desire? And I think that is very important as it relates to the rest of the revelation. I want to relate this idea of desire to verse four. My servant Leman shall be ordained to this work that he may reason with them, not according to that which he has received of them, but according to that which shall be taught him by you, my servants, and by so doing, I will bless him, otherwise he shall not prosper. That word prosper, there's a couple different ways it appears in the Old Testament, and there's a great link that we give you to Book of Mormon Central, and they do a just a one-minute video that's just beautiful. Uh, the two words are tzalak and sakal, and those words literally mean to be prudent or to have insight, comprehension, or to cause to consider or to have wisdom. And They're used throughout the Old Testament, but they're also related with this idea of pushing forward or to advance or to even cross over water or to cross over a river. In essence, what they mean to me is that I'm receiving knowledge from heaven, that I'm prospering in wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. In most cases, the verses do relate with coming unto some place like the promised land or prospering in the sense that your fields do well, they're fertile. But it also is associated, like I said earlier, with crossing over a river. And that word, salak, is used in that context in 2 Samuel 19, 17. When they cross over the Jordan River, the word used is sakal. 
And then earlier in the text, in 1 Samuel 10, 7, the Lord promises his servant that he will salak, that he will come mightily to him with his spirit. Prospering is tied into the heavens. It's tied into getting that connection with God. That real prospering isn't necessarily that I'm driving a Bentley or that I have a private jet, but that I have wisdom and then I cross over into the realm where God can give me his spirit. And what does that have to do with rivers? I mean, when they cross over the Jordan and come into the promised land, typologically, it's like coming into God's presence. And I think it also has to do with Hebrew cosmology. The ancients believed that the sky was blue because there was water up there. A lot of the Psalms, it talks about that God rides upon the waters. And then in Moses' revelation, he talks about all these sapphire stones that are underneath God's throne. It's the blue, the, the waters. In other words, you cross over into God's presence. So from the Old Testament perspective, I'm really seeing a lot more of getting wisdom, getting the knowledge of heaven. And of all the wisdom you need to get that will prosper you, notice that flows right into you've got to understand Jesus. You need to know. You need to know, verse 8, that all men have sinned and need to repent. The atonement of the Savior can cleanse us. I love verse 9. I have sent unto you mine everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. The gospel hasn't changed. It's faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Every single person from the beginning of time has to follow that pattern in order to be saved. Get Jesus right. So then we move on to what might be the next most important thing to get right, not just doctrinally, but in your life. So you need to understand your relationship with Christ. That comes first. And then we get on to marriage. Get the doctrine of marriage right, and then make marriage work for you to the best degree that you can. So first, the doctrine of marriage. So Jesus says, anyone who forbids marriage is not ordained of God. If you choose not to get married, that's different than forbidding other people to get married or proclaiming that people shouldn't get married. Because here's the most definitive statement on the subject. Marriage is ordained of God unto man. Marriage is ordained of God. In fact, I love that at the end of verse 16, he points out that if we take marriage out of the equation, the whole purpose of the earth's creation is missed. Bryce, this is right back to section two. Right back to section two. Right when Joseph 17 and if Elijah doesn't come, the whole earth will be wasted. It is coming. The whole earth will have missed the point of its creation. Marriage is ordained of God. Now, beyond that, I think what I'm hearing him say is, of all the things, don't miss salvation through Christ and don't miss family. We're kind of back to section 42, loving your spouse and getting that family right. If there's things that need to be fixed there, let's fix them. Marriage is ordained of God. Now we turn to meat. Verse 18, whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meat, that man should not eat the same, is not ordained of God. Now, I know the language is tricky, and sometimes it gets twisted, and people say that the double negative means that we shouldn't eat meat. But if you read the section heading, if you read the history, 
clearly some of the shakers have come to the conclusion that meat is not ordained for man and that that idea is being corrected. That meat is ordained of man. Verse 19 is very clear. The beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man for food and for raiment and that he might have in abundance. It's not a scarcity thing. Now, verse 20, he clarifies, it's not right that one man should possess above another. And then he clarifies in 21, do not shed blood or waste flesh if you have no need. But back to this idea of forbidding other people. So let me introduce kind of this concept of doubtful disputations, which is so rampant in the church, and especially over what we eat. Paul taught in Romans chapter 14 that we should receive each other, but not unto doubtful disputations. I'd encourage you to read the chapter 14 of Romans. The idea here is, let not those who do one thing condemn or judge or criticize those who don't do it. And let those who don't do it not despise those who do. Because you've missed the whole point of the gospel. Don't be guilty of doubtful disputations. And the idea here is the Lord is not saying that you can't choose to not eat meat. And there's nothing in here that suggests that that is not ordained of God. But the line we cross seems to be when I impose my personal beliefs on other people. Just because it's right for you doesn't mean it's right for everyone. God will clearly tell us what is right for everyone. Barring that, if he has not told us that something is right for everyone, then it's a personal choice. If I choose not to eat, I should not be the one that condemns or mocks or belittles or makes anyone feel guilty. Just because it's right for me doesn't mean it's right for you. And I think that's the heart and soul of what the Savior is saying here. I know someone dear in my life who chose to eat a certain way. And one day, someone else that I hold dear in my life was over at their house and was shamed. Shamed because they don't choose the same things this other person chose. We're so guilty of doubtful disputations. It's okay to eat meat. It's okay to choose not to. But we cannot impose our personal beliefs on other people. So that's kind of the false doctrines of section 49, a great lesson on sometimes well-intending people allow some false ideas into their head, and the Lord says we should do all that we can to correct our false ideas. Let's get the doctrine right. Now, there are some other wonderful little nuggets here in section 49. Let's tackle a couple of those. I like verse 6, Jesus descending and putting all enemies under his feet. And there's some cool stuff in the show notes that you can go and check out for yourself. I happen to love it, but I don't think we're going to spend time on it here today. I do want to talk a little bit about holy men you know not of, and that's verse 8. So the Lord says, Wherefore, I will that all men shall repent, for all are under sin, except those which I have reserved unto myself, holy men 
that you know not of. It's almost like the Lord just drops that hint and then he's like, now I'm going to talk about this. And he doesn't tell us, well, what are you talking about? And so I have some really great quotes. I want to start first with this one by Elder McConkie. He says, during his mortal ministry, Christ said, verily I say unto you, there will be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Commenting on this verse, he said, it's apparent that on a previous occasion on which we have no present record, Jesus taught his disciples the truths about the doctrine of translation and promised that some of them would continue to live on the earth until the second coming. John the beloved was one of them. So is the Lord referring to him? Perhaps. Another commenter said this, priesthood is a distinctive aspect of this last kingdom, but not everyone who serves God does so under formal priesthood direction or for that matter, is even known to the church members. So what does that mean? Well, we get examples of this, for example, in Isaiah, where the Lord has assigned Cyrus to do his work. In other words, are there holy men that we don't know of that are doing the Lord's work outside of the jurisdiction of the church? And we see this in church history, where there's some great people who stand up for Joseph, and they're just great men and women of faith, and they do things that the Lord would have them do. I love this quotation from Orson F. Whitney, who said, The Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along. They are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. And the same is true of the priesthood and its auxiliaries inside the church. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the truth, while others remain unconverted for the present, the beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily from their view for a wise purpose. The Lord will open their eyes in his own due time. God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. The Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. There are people in the church doing God's work, and there are people outside of the church who have been placed there to do God's work. And I just think one of the things that this is doing is expanding our vision that the Lord is doing his work, and we sometimes have such a limited view of what that means. Amen. So... We have a link in the show notes for you of a great podcast interview. It's a video or a podcast, however you want to use it, between Marlon K. Jensen and Terrell Givens. And at about the 32-minute mark, they have this conversation, and he starts talking about this verse. To me, this quote just really hit me hard where he said that Joseph Smith really understood the idea of an invisible church that transcends any particular denominational category. It's my understanding based on that, based on the Lord's reference to holy men that you know not of, is that he recognized that. The Doctrine and Covenant's own description of the church is those who will repent and have him to be their God. And then Terrell says, I believe that we should and that we can, and I have, felt a part of this larger spiritual community. That's not to downplay the unique significance of the restoration as the repository of saving keys. The way I would put it is that I think Joseph Smith was suggesting that the church, the institutional church, is the portal of salvation, but it's not the reservoir of the righteous. That's helped me to open myself up to being taught by some of the masters of the spiritual tradition. And then he goes to quote some of these people that have really touched him. And for me, I have to add my witness to what Terrell Givens is saying. I have read poetry by someone who lived 2,000 years ago 
or I, I might pick up a scholar that opens my mind to what's really happening in some of the Old Testament texts, and I feel this holiness. The gospel's big. It's just so expansive. Okay, so go to section 49, and you look at verse 24 and 25. It's talking about the second coming. The 23rd verse is saying, don't be deceived. The Lord's going to come. It's almost like the Lord saying, I haven't come, but I'm going to come. But then the Lord drops this nugget of truth. In verse 24, he says, before the great day of the Lord shall come, Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness, and the Lamanites shall blossom as the rose. Zion shall flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains and shall be assembled together to the place which I've appointed. There's three groups of people that are being designated in these verses. And when I read this commentary by Hugh Nibley, it opened my mind. Hugh Nibley says, as in Kirtland, so in Missouri and Nauvoo, the saints, they built for permanence. They were tired of being wanderers in in the tribulation while the Lord had other plans, plans which he clearly announced by the voice of the prophet. Hugh continues, Away, way back in 1831, God gave men a marvelous revelation setting forth the divine economy of the latter days. That revelation concludes with the announcement that three great historical events must transpire before the Lord comes again. Those, those three events I'm, that he's referencing are in verse 24 and 25, and here they are. Jacob will flourish in the wilderness, the Lamanites will blossom as the rose, and Zion will flourish. So Hugh Nibley continues. He says, this is the language of prophecy, but there is nothing mystical or obscure about it. The members of the Christian church and those pretending to be so have at all times called themselves Israel, but not Jacob. That name is reserved for the Jews. And the consultation of a good Bible commentary will show that it is bound intimately to Palestine, whereas Israel refers to the people of the later covenant wherever they are. Israel kata venuma. The earliest Christians called themselves spiritual Israel. That's Hugh doing his Greek. Jacob was Israel's name before he wrestled with the Lord and received his new covenant. Jacob, flourishing in the wilderness, is the Jews prospering in their desert places. So that's verse 24. Hugh Nibley is going to make the connection that that's the Jews, Jacob. Jacob, flourishing in the wilderness, is the Jews prospering in their desert places. Of that, there has never been a doubt in the minds of Latter-day Saints. Nor will there be the slightest doubt what is meant as the Lamanites blossoming as the rose. We all know what the Lamanites are and the familiar expression from Isaiah 35, that the desert shall rejoice and blossom, emphasizes not only a joyful, but a totally paradoxical and unexpected event, the dead desert coming to life. We reference some of this in the show notes. There's a lot of really good statistical information with the Lamanites blossoming as the rose. Uh, for example, in 1980, Gene R. Cook made the observation that there's a lot of church growth in Latin America. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is becoming a global religion, and that so much of the growth is in some of these places where the Lamanites will blossom as the rose. Excellent stuff. But back to Hugh Nibley. So we've talked about the Lamanites. We've talked about Jacob, the Jews. And then verse 25, talking about Zion, Hugh Nibley says, Lastly, Zion has been from the very first the familiar code word, so to speak, designating the restored church. Take a good look at verse 25. Notice where Zion is flourishing, hills and mountains. 
So this is Hugh Nibley's application. This is his interpretation. I happen to like it, but I'm not declaring any doctrine per se. I'm just a guy reading the scriptures and making connections and do with it whatever you want. So here it is. Hugh Nibley says, Here we are told that Zion will flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains and shall be assembled together to the place which I have appointed. Before the church was even a year old, the Lord announced that he had appointed a place of gathering upon hills and mountains. This could not possibly have been anywhere in the Midwest, and the prophet knew it, Hugh Nibley says. There is ample indication that he knew all along that the saints would not have their rest in Jackson County, however determined they were to have it. Now, big picture, Joseph's going to say that Zion is going to be all of North and South America, that it's going to fill those continents. And that must have been a radical thing to say to a group of just a few hundred people in Ohio at the time when he made this prophecy. And I'm like, we're seeing this. So anyway, I like that. I think it's really cool. It's not necessarily the main message of section 49, but it's almost like a couple gold nuggets the Lord just kind of sprinkled in here. That's 49. When we get to 50, it's a different thing, isn't it, Bryce? It is. So we've been talking about false doctrine, and now we kind of shift to false revelation, receiving messages that are not divine. Notice verse 7, Verily I say unto you, there are hypocrites among you who have deceived many, which has given the adversary power, but such shall be reclaimed. And that's kind of the idea here, is that even today, people are deceived by false forms of revelation. Yeah. People brought interesting views about how revelation worked from their culture. I love this short little statement by the prophet Joseph, where he said, nothing is a greater injury to the children of men than to be under the influence of a false spirit when they think they have the spirit of God. And in this instance, you know, there's a lot of examples historically. One of them is from a a missionary and later an apostle, Parley P. Pratt, where he said, as I went among the different branches, some very strange spiritual operations were manifest, which were disgusting rather than edifying. Some persons would seem to swoon away and make unseemly gestures and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances. Others would fall into ecstasies and be drawn into contortions or cramps or fits. Others would seem to have visions and revelations which were not edifying and which were not congenial to the doctrine and spirit of the gospel. In short, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church. And all these things were new and strange to me, and had originated in the church during our absence and previous to the arrival of President Joseph Smith from New York. So it's during this time period, as people are coming into the church, and especially as Joseph's not with them, that they have these spirits that are manifested unto them, And in this revelation, the Lord, I love verse 10, where in the middle of the verse, he says, let us reason together that you may understand. I'm going to break down some basic things about how we teach, how we receive the spirit. And I really think this applies if you're a missionary or if you're a gospel teacher or learner, even if you're being exposed to some new ideas, you can ask yourself these questions. Are the ideas light? Are they edifying? I really do think all of us in our core have this compass, which we can use to figure out truth. And I really think that's what section 50 is. It's another kind of form of section six through nine about revelation. And if you haven't heard that podcast, 
Bryce really does explain so many powerful ways how revelation works. And so we're not going to do a ton on that because we already have talked about it. But I really do think section 50 is the Lord is fine-tuning these early saints, helping them understand how the Holy Ghost works in their life, because there's so many false manifestations of that. And fast forward to 2021, most of us have grown up in a church that has learned a lot of these basic principles. But even today, people are deceived by false forms of revelation. So as a precursor, let me just read this from Boyd K. Packer. There are two sources of false revelation. And this is from his classic talk, The Candle of the Lord. Elder Packer says, Be ever on guard, lest you be deceived by inspiration from an unworthy source. And then he makes this declaration. You can be given false spiritual message. Number one, there are counterfeit spirits just as there are counterfeit angels. Be careful lest you be deceived, for the devil may come disguised as an angel of light. So, number one, be careful that you don't receive the message from the wrong source. The devil can deceive you and give you what you think is a message of light. Watch out for those. And then Elder Packer gives us the second one. And I think I'd emphasize this one today a great deal. Number two, the spiritual part of us and the emotional part of us are so closely linked that it is possible to mistake an emotional impulse for something spiritual. We occasionally find people who have received what they assume to be spiritual promptings from God when those promptings are either centered in the emotions or are from the adversary. So beware that you're not deceived by a false source and that you don't mistake an emotional experience, or as someone wisely once said, a hormonal experience for a spiritual experience. So what are the rules of revelation? Given that we can be deceived, the Lord is going to say, let's talk about how revelation works. Let's reason face-to-face as man reasons one with another. So verse 13, okay, let me ask you this question. What were you ordained to do? Answer, preach my gospel by the Spirit, even the comforter which was set forth. So that's the question is, am I doing it with the Spirit? So then he begins to answer the question in verse 17. He that is ordained of me and sent forth to preach the word of truth, does he preach it by the spirit of truth or some other way? If it's of some other way, it's not of God. He that receiveth the the word of truth, doth he receive it by the spirit of truth or some other way? If it be by some other way, it's not of God. So here's one of the critical ways to understand that it was from God. This is verse 21. Why is it that you cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the Spirit of truth receiveth it as it is preached by the Spirit of truth? Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. I think lesson number one is that revelation is confirmed by other people. If I receive a spiritual prompting, 
that causes great concern to someone else, to everyone else, it ought to be a message to me that it was not of God. Because if it was of God, I received it and they received it. And we both rejoice together. For a young man to say to a young woman, I've received a revelation that you're my wife, and she is horrified by that or even upset in the slightest degree, should indicate to both of them that it was not of God. Because both would receive it joyously. Both would rejoice together. Revelation uplifts everyone involved. I like that word edified, Bryce. To where we get the word edificare, it means to build up. And I really do believe that a message from heaven, it's to build up not only myself, but if I'm teaching my listeners, we both walk out and we are built up. So if I receive what is a revelation and that revelation involves you, and yet what you receive from this is darkness, you are adversely affected by it. It ought to indicate to me that that was not revelation that I received. Now, I recognize you can receive revelation that someone rejects, like Joseph Smith received a revelation and the Shakers rejected. I think that's a little bit different. But when I receive revelation, say, for example, regarding my daughter, my daughter should also receive that revelation and be edified. Or it could be compulsion. We, we, we don't want to use revelation to compel anyone or to force them. And I think that's a great rule, is that everyone involved will be edified. This is also a message on how we're to preach. It says in verse 18, if it's some other way, it's not of God. There's all these examples in the New Testament where the demons come to Jesus and they say, oh, Jesus, son of God. And he looks at them and basically says, don't say that. And yet what they're saying is true. But I think the distinction here, what Jesus is trying to draw out is, yes, I'm the son of God, but that's not your message and you're not preaching it by the spirit. So sometimes you can be in the presence of someone saying something that's true, but not by the spirit. And that's where, where I come down to, you know, arguing over religious things. I don't want to get into a big debate and argument with people over religious things, because as soon as we're shouting past each other, the ideal speech condition is gone. And so is the Holy Ghost. And the definitive statement that Mike's referring to is verse 23, that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. And I know that's hard for us to believe. We, I was so convinced that that was revelation. Be humble enough to recognize that if it didn't edify, not just you, if it didn't edify others, it was not of God. Bryce, I know I've done that before. I've said something, and then as soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, guys, let me... Let me have a do-over. I didn't say that in a very edifying way. And then if I just tweak maybe the way I say it or my tone, all of a sudden there's a collective sigh. I think as teachers of the gospel, sometimes we really can feel a lot of pressure because we want to represent the Lord and his views and, and the way the text was written, and we're all going to fall short. I'm back to that truth in part. I'm just an imperfect uh, frame to try to magnify the, this light and the Lord understands that, but I think the key is we're shooting for that. Verse 22, we're shooting for that edification and we're patient with each other. But this is such a beautiful section on, you know, how do I make these course is it corrections? From God? Is it yeah. from God? Yeah. So verse 24, he gives us some synonyms, right? Here's another way to measure if it's edified you. It fills you with light. That which is of God is light. 
and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light grows brighter and brighter. I can tell what is from God because it edifies me. I rejoice to receive it. Even if it's correction, I have been rebuked by the Spirit. But the Spirit can rebuke me without can he re, I rejoice in what came, and it builds me up. It really did edify me, and I know it came from the Lord, even though it was not a pleasant message to hear. It did edify. And so we can measure whether or not it's of God if it edifies, if it lifts, if it draws me to God and causes me to want more truth. And so he says in verse 31, if you behold a spirit manifested that doesn't seem right. So you go to church and something and someone says something. And when they say something, it just doesn't feel right. Or I read something on social media and it just doesn't feel right. If you behold a spirit manifest and you cannot understand it, and you receive not that spirit, meaning I did not receive a confirming witness of the Holy Ghost that what you claim you said by the Holy Ghost was true. Here's someone who in gospel doctrine said something, and they clearly believe they're being led by the Holy Ghost, but I didn't receive a confirming witness from the Holy Ghost that it was true. So I I don't know. So let me go back to 31. If you behold a spirit manifested and you can't understand it, and you receive not that spirit, you shall ask of the Father in the name of Jesus. And if he give it not unto you that spirit, then you know it is not of God. And those are the rules. This is check and balance on revelation. Don't be fooled by an imitation. Now, I think we need to also look at that in terms of our emotions. Quite often we receive an emotional impression. And that emotional impression is not from the Spirit. Well, it will cause other people to not receive the confirmation of the Spirit that they need to have. Or flip side, you could have an emotional impression, and it is from the Spirit, and it does edify, and you go with it. So how do you decide? You've got to talk to Heavenly Father. Um, I would also say whenever I'm in front of teenagers and they're like, Brother Day, how do I know? And I usually say, if it inspires you to do something good that's edifying, follow it and see what happens. Talk to your mom and dad. They love you. They have your best interests at heart. They'll help you. We are all collectively in this together. We're all connected. And I think that's connected to verse 43. At the end of the revelation, the Lord says in verse 43, the Father and I are one. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then he says, inasmuch as you have received me, ye are in me, and I am in you. In other words, that light that makes up God is in you, and it's in your parents, and it's in your children, and it's in, we are all connected. To me, I just keep coming back to this tree imagery. We are all part of this tree, and we're all connected together. And the Lord is saying, trust that, that he's your father, he will help you. And then I love in verse 44, where he says, I'm in your midst, I'm the good shepherd, and the stone of Israel. Build on that and you're going to be okay. And speaking of tree, I feel like we need to go back to Alma 32 and the seed that becomes the tree, because I think Alma gave us another way to confirm that it's edifying. Here's how I know if something is edifying. Here's how I know if the seed is a good seed. Remember, he gave us four things. So I'm going to quote Alma 32, 28. If someone plants a seed of a truth, say someone in gospel doctrine says, the spirit said to me this, 
or if someone came to me and says, I've received an impression that you need to do this or whatever, if I receive what I believe is revelation, here's a great test as to whether or not it edifies. So I received a revelation and it's like a seed and I want to know if the seed is a good seed. So Alma says, plant it. And I think that's what Mike said, act on the impression that came and see what comes of it. Because here's how you'll know if it's a good seed. Number one, it will begin to swell within your breasts. You'll feel something. You will feel edified. But that's not all. He says, number two, it will begin to enlarge your soul. Revelation makes you a better person. And it makes the people around you better people. You can tell it's edifying because it's inspiring you to be better, to do better. So if it enlarges your soul, it's edifying you. Number three, it will enlighten your understanding. It just will connect dots inside you. I love that word, enlighten your understanding. And then I love the last one, it will be delicious unto you. If it was of God, it won't scare you. It won't make you panic or fill you with anxiety. If it came from God, it will swell within your breast. It will enlarge your soul. It will enlighten your understanding, and it will be delicious unto you. I know we're, we're all practicing this, and sometimes we get it wrong, but we all need to be willing to say, Maybe I was deceived in that. Maybe that was more emotion than spirit. Maybe that came from a false source because clearly what happened didn't edify other people. I love what Joseph Smith said about revelation. A person may profit by noticing the first intimation of the spirit of revelation. For instance, when you feel pure intelligence flow into you, that's one sign. I feel light flowing into me. And it will give you sudden strokes of ideas that by noticing it, it will be fulfilled that same day or soon. In other words, it came to fruition. It it edified. Those things that were presented to your mind by the Spirit of God will come to pass. But this is my point in reading this quotation. Joseph says, and thus, by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation until you become perfect in Christ Jesus. Let's be humble enough to recognize that even the best among us can be deceived by false sources. So ask Heavenly Father if there's anything you don't understand, and He'll tell you if it was from Him or not. And with that, we will see you next time when we cover sections 51 through 57. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.